Black Cats Run podcast. Learn to fly, episode three G. Further and further forward in this grand arcing episode, we're trying to figure out if the things that we're employing to get off the ground and try to increase our speed, our power, our aerobic capacity, our endurance, all of these different things that we think of when we think about performance in endurance sport, you know, in what ways are these things maybe holding us back in figuratively and literally, maybe in some cases, slowing us down? How are they negatively feeding into culture of being an athlete when we have expectations, things that we're optimistic about, or if we have convictions that a certain thing is going to supply or provide us with a particular set of answers, that interventions are going to be effective, that they're going to solve our problems, and then we encounter a situation in which it doesn't actually play out the way that we maybe might have hoped. What does that mean as an experience? How can we react to that? So for the last episode, I had posted some data, uh, some of my training data, and a little bit of that was relative to the last episode, really only the first image in which I shared some of my information, right? I had profiled uh, myself a little bit, hopefully in a positive way, um, or at least a neutral way. Regardless, that information is out there now for people to consume and wonder about what mysteries um, could have been behind such incredible feats of modern modern athleticism. And I think that there are some good things. There are some things in there that I'm proud of that I like. And then there are some things in there that maybe I'm not so pleased with overall. Um, But I think that's the experience of being an athlete and probably being a person in general is that we go out and we pursue things and the outcomes are not what we predict. And I think if things were overly predictable, then they wouldn't be worth pursuing. I would also say in a more general sense that that's generally a positive thing about our athletic experience overall is that we don't really want it to be incredibly predictable and inevitable. If we know exactly what's going to happen or we feel we can predict what's going to happen, there would be a short-term, I think, sense of immense satisfaction and validation to that. And then after that point, we would, I think, lose interest. If you ever played video games where you've been able to turn on uh, – invincibility or you know other things that basically eliminate the core challenges of that game that you're playing uh you know at first it can be really funny like if you're playing a multiplayer game um with some buddies and you turn on you know some sort of a cheat that 
you know, gives you, let's say it's, I don't know if it's a sports game and it lets you score with a hundred percent accuracy, no matter what. Right. And, and they don't know, right. It can be funny um, at first, right. Sort of a prank, but if that's just sort of your experience all the time, and if you've tried that, it gets boring. It's not interesting when, because there's no problem to solve. There's no puzzle that we're trying to figure out anymore. It's just inevitable. The outcome is inevitable and inevitable outcomes don't engage. I don't think our interest, they're just not fascinating. It doesn't really require anything. And I think this is where we see sometimes the athletes like at um, any level of sport, but this phenomenon is more common at lower levels of sport. You know, you start to see it in college and you see it way more um, in high school, you know, uh, you know, kids, junior age athletes is they'll just be in their little competitive space because, and I'm not saying it's bad that we do this, but we definitely keep them in a very specific environment, right? Those competitive fishbowls are pretty small. You know, there's really not a lot of space um, to go out and encounter the actual level. And, you know, even at the high school level, the reality is the distribution of people who are currently displaying a capacity to do a sport at a high level or are performing at a high level just simply aren't really encountering each other very much. And that becomes really impactful. It means that there's basically no challenge for these individuals. And that idea of challenge and what is the right level of challenge and is it possible or realistic or fair to be in that right level of challenge all of the time that might be an environment we try to create for ourselves when we get better but then we're going to go out and we're going to encounter real challenges whether they're the challenges of a game um, of a race a series of races some other kind of adversity in life and we have to figure out you know or we will I should say, maybe figure out through that engagement whether or not what we've learned how to do is useful. And when you have people who are in situations where it's too easy, where it's like they have the cheat codes on all the time, people get bored and they quit and you see people not engaged. And you could relate to flow psychology. And I don't think that these are new ideas, but I think there's just so many ideas out there now about all of these different kinds of aspects of, you know, I mean, in a general and cliche sense, the human experience that I think it feels like we're constantly rediscovering these things because it's challenging. It's a, it's an intellectual, you know, juggling performance to try to keep track of all of these ideas at once. And you can sort of learn something at some point and, and forget about it and come back to it. But the flow psychology stuff is not something that's new. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it feels new because they haven't had a context in which they've worked with or interacted with that kind of thinking before. But it's the idea that there's our engagement, right? Or you might think of it as like arousal. When do we feel really stimulated and you know find it easy to quote unquote focus on things um, or easy to be productive or easy to do things um, that other people would describe as hard? That that happens when we're in a state where our level of skill and the level of challenge are balanced. And if our skill is sort of sufficient to the challenge, but is 
being stretched where we have to like really apply all of our skills. That's kind of what it looks like when people can be really productive and will seek things out that are challenging and difficult. So the predictability aspect of an outcome, it can't be too high. And I think one of the cool things about endurance sports is because the racing of all, if you think of sport in general and athletic competitions and game in general and culture and society, I think that individual endurance sports, because of the level of fatigue um, that they incur as a result of people or that people incur as a result of competing in them. And then you think about um, you know, what that looks like for other sports or games the fatigue is just so high for the endurance sports that you know you can't compete in them as frequently as you can in other things and i think that actually is maybe a factor behind a lot of that engagement and interest and so when we look at that and then we combine um you know with that the variability of our own capacity which we're going to talk about more in this episode and we talked about a little bit already too but that variance combined with the infrequency of these things, I think creates a really compelling puzzle. But it can also be super frustrating when you know you have limited opportunities to try to solve that puzzle or to try to at least get that feeling of, you know, I at least want to snap a couple pieces together. Right. Maybe I'm not gonna it's not all maybe magically going to come together at once. And maybe that's good because maybe that would be falling into the trap of it's too easy and we're not engaged. So when we're looking at more into this. This is when we're really going to go in and talk about a lot of the numbers. So I have shared on the Instagram page um, this data that I'm going to be referring to. So uh, in general, people are welcome to, encouraged, invited to come and join um, us on our Instagram page at Black Cats Run. You want to go and uh, follow. We'd love to have you there. Um, Space for dialogue, space for people to share their perspectives and ideas, things that they uh, want to hear us address in the podcasts, uh, future episodes. Um, and you feel like sending us a DM or letting us know what you're thinking about as you're listening along with the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. But this data, right, is on there. And so you can specifically go uh, and you can take a look at that so you can see uh, what I'm talking about as we're talking through this, because we're going to get specific in a sense that um, it we can lose track, pretty, I think, of what we're trying to talk about if we don't have that reference. Um, or at least having that reference, I think, will really enhance our ability to see what we're talking about. So we had sort of profiled, just a quick recap, right? This idea that there's variance in what happens day to day, you know, and for me, I just had an experience, and this is not unique. This happens all the time, but, and, you know, so it's not difficult to think back to find one. Um, and the fact that it happened just yesterday into, into today, I think is, you know, indicative of the frequency. I think it probably happens once, once or twice a week. And I would imagine other people can relate to this feeling. Um, or if they think about this, they might start to see something that they've experienced in a different way and kind of will discover that there's a commonality of experience here between what I'm describing and maybe stuff that you've described. But yesterday I did my 60-minute uh, run and 60-minute ride. And you'll see also on the Instagram post that one of the uh, 
um, charts that I included was a, a diagram mapping out what I'm trying to do every week, approximately in training, you know, plus or minus. And we'll talk about, you know, how do I decide and how can we in general think about what we're trying to do and what we should do? Because we've talked in the pod already about how, you know, for me, when I think about training and organizing training, and I suggest for other people too, we want to think about what are we trying to accomplish and recognize the plan isn't what we're trying to accomplish. The plan is a attempt to figure out what we're trying to accomplish. And at some point, right, we decided, okay, well, I guess this is going to be the plan. And we need to be willing to change that. And so yesterday, I did my 60-minute run in the morning, and I did my 60-minute ride, and I didn't fall asleep until pretty late. And I mentioned this because this might be a useful variable. Um, you know, So I slept from probably like 11 to about, I woke up at like 4.35 or 4.40. And at that point, usually I'm going to get up at 5 on a work day to run. So I was like, what's the point of going back to bed? Like, I'm sort of awake now. Now I go back to sleep. It's not going to help. I'm, I'm going to wake up and I'm just going to feel even more groggy. And that, you know, that awful feeling for me, that's the biggest barrier to, to getting up and exercising early in the morning. I think like if there was, you know, if your alarm cock would just like inject you with caffeine, you know, 15 seconds before it went off or whatever, so that you could wake up and you would just feel active and alert, I would have no problem, you know, because once I get activated, it's easy. But that initial window is all kinds of living hell for whatever reason. So like limited amount of sleep though, right? You know, we're like talking about for whatever reason, you know, five or six hours of sleep, um, which I usually don't have trouble sleeping. I just didn't go to bed until uh, late. And then that's what happens is you've got to get up when the alarm goes off or else you're not going to be able to do the activity. And so then I did that and that was fine. Um, and then I did the ride in the afternoon and the ride felt great. Um, I felt really smooth on the trainer, um, which in something I'm noticing in general has been different since I've been doing more running is the trainer stuff just feels so much better because it becomes possible in a way that it wasn't possible before for me to feel uh, strong and for me to feel under control. Because I think when you don't have that running piece and you get on the trainer, it can feel really traumatic because it's so dissimilar from what you're used to experiencing. And so I'm on the trainer and the sensation, I don't know how else to describe it, but it feels like my legs are made of butter. And not in like a bad, you know, way that they're dysfunctional, but just like incredibly smooth, just great, you know, and that was despite running and in the morning and not sleeping a ton the night before. And so then today, you know, originally I would plan to go out and do two sets of three times a mile with a minute recovery, but it had snowed and the spot where I wanted to do it, I wasn't really sure that that was going to really be sufficiently clear. So I said, oh, I'll just go and do this nine to nine and a half mile loop and see how that plays out. And, you know, in doing so, um, I've pretty quickly, it was like, wow, I feel kind of rough. Like yesterday, I felt great. And today, I don't really feel that great. And it was in that space of it's not like overwhelmingly bad. I can't exercise I can't work out um but it was it was the sense of like okay if I try to do 
that workout? Because I was sort of debating in my mind, do I go and do I do the mile repeats? Maybe do I do a fart lick or do I just sort of settle for running the loop? And I ended up, you know, I mean, anytime the road went up, I could just feel in the quads. And, you know, I looked back at the ride and I said, well, what the heck happened on the ride? And, you know, nothing really remarkable per se. I mean, I think that I sort of started out the first part of the ride, two thirds of the ride, maybe averaging 900, uh, 900 watts. Yeah, as if, right? Averaging 195 watts and then maybe went up to 200 to 205. And for heart rate context, that meant from going from like 135s to like 142 to 145. Okay. So it's a jump, but it's like a small thing, right? And I kind of wonder, is this something that could be explanatory? Was that just enough to then come back today and take that edge off just enough, right? But you wouldn't know that from how you felt because it felt great. To me, that's like a sign of like, wow. And is the reaction to that to sort of be like, okay, well, I guess I can sort of lean into this feeling because as a, and for me, a big part of doing these activities is I like feeling good. But one of the dilemmas that happens is when you do feel good, you just sort of want to soak that up. And it can be really difficult to try to be patient and A, say to yourself, well, I can save this and I can do this other thing that I want to do tomorrow or the next day. Or if it's a race, right? I need to, how do I save this? And I think there's this sense of, I feel good now. I want to sort of lean into that. And that maybe just going, now this is a hypothesis and I don't even know to what extent I necessarily think this would actually be the explanation. But one hypothesis could be that, well, you know, if it had stayed at 195 watts or if it had stayed 134, 135 beats a minute, maybe I would have gone out and I would have had that, continued to have that smooth feeling, right? But at the same time, you wouldn't, I wouldn't think based on my power profile that adding 10 watts, right, up to 200 to 205, I wouldn't think that would have any kind of adverse effect. But again, like variance, and where does that variance come from? Does it just take that little bit for me to sort of bump me off of my equilibrium? So when we think about that as an example, right, and then we try to understand what's going on. Um, so if we look at these charts, um, and I'm looking at the sixth one uh, here is what I'm referencing. So those of you who are following along, I'll try to point out or refer to those. This is where I went up and I did a run by where I said the Daniels running formula, which is just one running formula, running method. There's a lot of others that we could have picked. I picked the Daniels one because of what I think it sort of represented historically. And I do feel that it was a catalyst for increasing publication and systemizing of this stuff. And that's in 1998. And then I think as you know, digital technologies and internet stuff has just become more and more popular over the last decades. I think, you know, the idea of these calculators and stuff have become popular. There are so many running pace, watt calculator things out there, and they're all sort of different versions of the same thing to the point where you can say, does it even matter? How can I differentiate? And if you don't have a lot of knowledge um, or, you know, long practice or other some other version of expertise, if you will, is it's really hard to really 
tell the difference, right? And then you realize at some point, you're just in this marketing maelstrom of people throwing these things out there. And this all this, you know, study shows this and all of these things that are just designed at the end of the day, based on whether or not they draw us in, whether or not they increase, you know, consumer, as we say in economics, whether they increase the determinant of consumer taste for a product. And we start to get further and further away from what's actually maybe helpful or useful from an athletic performance perspective. So, right, we settle on the Daniels model because of, I think, it's sort of position in that uh, timeline of development of those sorts of things. And then I also used Coogan's seven cycling power zones because I think Coogan's seven cycling power zones are also kind of a benchmark um, type thing and applying and making use of power meters. And I think that the zone conversation is something that continues to expand, um, you know, and I think that we're just going to see more and more discussion on reevaluation of that on the rise of uh, Gustav and Christian, the Norwegian triathletes. Um, and then I think the reality is, is that Inga Britson and people in his sort of cohort training space are applying some of these same things, but you know, for whatever reason, um, I think that's lagged a little bit in terms of getting um, caught up in terms of the dialogue. And part of that has to do with how do people look at that stuff. It also might be that um, in triathlon culture, there's just more mass participation, um, like more people do it. It's accessible for people who aren't either in a particular age group or at a particular like elite level. Whereas the reality is, and I've, you know, said how I think it's sort of a bummer that it's become like this, um, is that there really aren't track meets put on for, you know, the general athlete, if you will, you know, um, I think that that limits our interest in trying to really understand the nuances of how they train. So unless you are a track athlete, you know, actively competing middle distance, distance runner on the track, right? You're not, we're not told to look at, at people unless they're doing what we're doing, right? So those are the people who are going to be interested, the people who are competing over the same distances. And then you know, the coaches, people who are coaching people to do those events are, are the other group of people who's going to be interested in this. And I don't think that's bad. Like, I'm not criticizing that. But I think structurally, behaviorally, we need to recognize that that means it's only going to be engaging a much smaller group of people and the conversations there are going to be smaller. And if you're, and, you know, and then of that population, the overwhelming majority is it's applying to high school athletes and college athletes, college coaches, and high school coaches. And the athletes um, are, you know, when you're at that point, you're at such an early stage of your experience in this stuff if you're somebody who chooses to stick with it for the long term because you develop an abiding interest and you develop that positive or a more positive relationship with this stuff. And I think that conversely, um, when we think about, you know, the coaching differentiation, I think a lot of coaches end up feeling, especially when you're in those environments, that they have their system and that they already kind of know and they move toward this mindset of like, well, you know, the athletes who aren't succeeding here are outliers, right? That I have had, you know, this all American 
uh, you know, this one time I had this all American runner. So I know everything there is about coaching. And then it becomes possible to position your mindset into just dismissing everything instead of recognizing, wait a minute, maybe these all Americans are 1% or less, you know, of the total, maybe say we're talking about this, let's say in a running context of the runners who've come through my space. Maybe those people are the outliers. Maybe they would have been all American anywhere they went. And maybe I don't really know. And But it's easy to look at athletes and say, especially when you adopt a path of discipline mindset and say, well, the, you're the, you know, the athlete's the problem. They're lacking in this. They're lacking in this. They're lacking in this. And you can just go on and on and on. And all of those mindsets present, so I prevent you from really wanting to explore more. So we look at a really narrow space. So I think, though, that the Gustav and the Christian stuff is going to increase this dialogue. But I think it's still historically important, um, even if it's a maybe a shorter historical scale than what you know most people are going to think when they think about history. Um, it's still important to kind of look at one of these more original things because that's kind of what we're doing with the Daniels running formula. And then I've contrasted this with, um, and I hope that this table is easy to interpret what I was trying to do with this. I've contrasted this with uh, my numbers. Um, and by my numbers here, I mean what kind of my actual application is. If I take my training and I put that into zones, what does that look like? Okay. So that's what we're depicting on here. And that's in the black cats run column. And then there's four columns. And then there's sort of two larger columns, which one is the running column. The other is the cycling column. I also think it's useful for people who just cycle or people who just run. And maybe you have this kind of thought process, either that um, these two sports are totally different um, in terms of how they train, or you haven't really thought about it. And you would just sort of assume that they're different because they're not the same sport. But there's actually a lot more similarity than you might think. But then the differences are greater in some ways than maybe you also might think, if that makes any sense. And we'll try to expand on that. So what you can see here initially is when I go and I look at, and I don't actually necessarily, this is sort of an exercise for me because I don't actually have you know, a formal concept in my mind and say to myself, well, today I'm going to be in this one of my customized zones or this one of my customized zones. And I've experimented with um, different things, but you know, and I've tried to apply um, models in high school. I was, uh, you know, one part of the year with one coach, we were sort of supposedly trying to implement the Daniels running formula. Talked about that before on the pod. Um, and then on the Coogan stuff, when I first got a power meter, you know, I, I started hearing, wow, power meters just totally change everything. And then it was one of those, a, f a friend of a friend, right? So a friend of mine shared me some story from a friend of his who said that getting a power meter is the single biggest thing you can do in cycling. And I hadn't really gotten into the power meter stuff or understanding that at all. And I was like, okay, well, it tells you how hard you're riding. I could see how that could be really, maybe that could be really helpful. Um, and I got the power meter and I I think it's it's been really interesting. And I, I feel like just from a experience standpoint, Strava standpoint, it's cool to see power. You know, it's kind of like in, in running when you, it's more representative of like the idea of pacing and you can see these long-term trends. And I think the value of something like power 
in looking to track improvement is definitely valid and it's definitely significant. And I definitely think it's something that's worth considering um, for everybody. But how valid is it in that short-term day-to-day process? I don't know. And what you can see here is that when I try to think about, well, if I'm going to break my training into zones in the way that you know these models and these systems do, what do they kind of look like? And to what extent do they overlap with they write the formal example within that sport? And to what extent do they um, you know, overlap, you know, across these different sports? And what we see is the concept of the easy pace is really the point of agreement. And then even then there's some confusion. And then there's sort of some consensus on the idea of steady aerobic zone two. Um, I feel that that zone's there. I definitely feel there's a zone below and there's a feeling uh, because right to me, I'm sort of saying these are more about like what subjectively you actually can perceive when you're exercising. There's a level of I'm not walking, right? I'm not sitting on my bike without pedaling, but I feel that I'm doing an effort that's not much higher than walking or sitting on my bike without pedaling. That's sort of minimum effort, but you still get to be active and doing the activity. And, you know, and then I think that sort of can build up. And then at some point I feel you cross cross over until you're doing more of a steady effort where if you're not, um, have, you know, paying attention to what you're doing, um, you might find yourself, you know, drifting backward. But conversely, you could also find yourself drifting forward if you're feeling really good. You know, when I, my muscles just feel powerful and relaxed and comfortable, it's easy for me to just gradually increase that tempo. And you see that a lot, I think, with people's exercise patterns in general. It's very common to go out. There's that obviously, you know, and appropriately a warm up period. And then people feel start to feel stronger. And if they're having a good day and they have good energy and they're, you know, feeling engaged and positive about what, what they're doing, it's not uncommon for people to progress. And I, I can remember doing runs in high, high school where we're just absolutely wheeling it the last couple miles of these runs, um, you know, just crushing it. And when I was coaching cross country, I mean, I, and I ran with the athletes the whole time. I, you know, after a couple of years, I stopped doing the workouts, partly because the team was getting better and it was it was taking more energy to do those. Um, and partly because I also realized that I needed to be do a better job supervising and talking to people about how the workouts were going. But we would still go out on some runs as a team, you know, especially on like the nine to eleven mile loops. And, you know, for me, you know, I was, by the time I got to the end of my coaching stint, the team was so good that I was, get, I could not basically handle keeping up with these guys anymore on the really hilly loops, but on the flatter loops that we would do, you know, say over the winter more often, um, you know, the rhythm would just sort of start to develop and it would be a similar thing. And I think there was probably an element of, you know, oh man, we're going to stick it to coach. Um, which the reality is that if we really, really got down to it, that's totally what would have happened. But, you know, my capacity to run, I think was a, 
quite a bit higher than they're imagining. Um, probably because they, you know, the reality is right. Most coaches are not, um, in a position with their own fitness, um, to say the least to actually go out and do the kinds of training they're assigning the athletes themselves. So, but in that environment too, is just getting out there and, you know, it's sort of get out of control sometimes, but, and for me, it's, you know, hard to hold back and aggregate. I don't think it was detrimental, but um, in the short term, it would introduce this kind of variability in fatigue. But we didn't really try to, you know, lock that down, you know, and that was a part of it is like, well, we're feeling good. You know, we want to feel good. That's important. And I think that in pursuing that kind of a process, you know, you start to then also further realize, you know, how useful are these zones really? You know, so for my concept, I define my kind of regular, easy, aerobic kind of recovery effort, I think now is maybe 9.15 to 10.20 pace per mile. Riding, I think I would say maybe 120 to 160 watts. And then heart rate wise, for our, it's, my heart rate stuff is wicked different. So the Daniel's running and the Coogan thing suggests sort of somewhat more similar um, zones. Um, because it's just right as percentage of your lactate threshold heart rate. My lactate threshold heart rate for cycling is about 10 beats lower than running. And that's not uncommon, by the way, for there to be that kind of a, a variance. And I wonder if that is informed by what maybe like whatever activity you have done the longest, if you have a greater level of efficiency and on the bike. And I, I think I've said this before on the pod that on the bike for me, it's like my leg muscles just start turning to lead before I reach the kind of anywhere close to the level of sort of oxygen debt and running and running. It just feels like, man, if I could just get more oxygen, I could go faster, you know, or I could hold this for longer. So it's a, it's a different feeling. And I wonder if the variance in lactate threshold heart rate has anything to do with that. And it might not. Right, we should acknowledge that that's a just total guesswork on my part. There's also some variance for me between the power and the uh, modeled power, and I think a part of it is is that when I go out and I'm exercising, if I'm trying to feel good, you know, and I'm applying that concept in the way we've been talking about and trying to get at in the podcast, I'm not applying necessarily the same kinds of zones. When I think about my cycling, for example, I feel that there's an easy zone, which I'm saying for me is 120 to 160 watts. There's a, a, a thing that I like the zone two is kind of a phrase that sticks in my head. And I think that's that kind of training that just lacks um, a common word. So I've continued to apply that, even though I don't necessarily think of my other sort of differentiation and training intensities by their assigned zones or what have you. But that zone two is 150 to 180 watts. And then I say for cycling, there's what I call infralactate, which I think of as being below lactate because I don't like and I don't necessarily think that working directly at lactate or at the 4.0 level is really that effective. And then that's interesting because I had reached that conclusion based on some other thinking and some experiences and some evidence through co my own coaching um, as well. And then 
you know, the stuff with the, you know, well, you want to train at, you know, three millimole, or that's more accurately the threshold, you know, that's starting to come forward um, through Gustav and Christian um, and, you know, other people starting to talk about that kind of metric more. It's interesting because I think that what I might be, have done is I might have sort of arrived at physiologically the same kind of a definable parameter, but I didn't do that through using a lactate meter. I was doing that based on the fact that I wanted the athletes to feel good because I felt that if they felt good, the work was more productive. And I was doing that based on the fact that the paces that I was assigned for workouts and training was almost always overwhelming and intolerable, basically. I couldn't do it. It didn't matter um, what level of mental focus I tried to bring to that. And you know, and then I basically say there's like what I think of as like KOM type effort because I don't do, I don't do intervals outside on the bike. I, you know, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, but it doesn't work for me. Uh, I don't live in an area and I would imagine people don't, most people don't live in an area where that's really convenient. And if people can go out and they can do that, that's great. But the terrain around here is really, you know, changeable. And I feel if you go out and you just ride steadily, you're naturally and you just allow yourself to ride up all the different short, punchy climbs um, around here, right? There's just tons and tons of climbs that are, you know, between 100 meters to a mile long in some cases, just all over the place. And, you know, I designed the loops based on that. And so to me, it's like KOM effort, this sort of like fart, let go as you feel. You know, if you want to go harder up this, go harder up that. And then sometimes, you know, yeah, pulling back and not something with my brother, you know, who can really go out and light it up on a lot of these segments, you know, you can get sucked into that and it's fun, but it can also, you can, you know, end up spending a lot of energy in a lot of different ways and, you know, trying to think about keeping that under control and trying to maybe stay more aerobic and not just going so hard that you're no longer engaging that aerobic system. Um, is important, but right. You compare that. So that's basically four zones that I apply for that. And you can see, right. The Coogan's seven zone model, right. I mean, by its title alone, it has seven distinct zones and where I do overlap, um, like my easy rot, my zone two, um, is within is below the Coogan zone one suggestion. And then, you know, with the lactate, it's the lack, when you get closer to the lactate threshold level, and that's where the models say, this is what's most productive to me. That's where I fall off a cliff. And I'm like, no, I can't, this is rough. You know, I can't sustain this to me. It's like doing a race, except I don't want to be there at all. You know, the level of engagement is totally flat. Now, Having defined this, there's these other charts that I've displayed here. And this is where you really basically uh, want to be able to see this or else it's just going to be the meaning just becomes so much more obvious. But I got a, a lactate plus meter um, as I was getting interested in the lactate stuff. My brother had done a lactate test with somebody. And it's one of those things where, oh, physiological testing. I'm like, oh, that could be really interesting. Oh, that's like $500. And I'm like, okay, well, I bet you can just buy. And he described the test. And I'm like, okay, so you just get the meter and you just 
do the blood prick. And you see that, by the way, if you look at, say, like Lionel Sanders, uh, more recent stuff with him working out, um, you know, you he show, right, that they're just, they just, boop, go over, you know, they do it in the earlobe. I do it on the uh, fingertips when I've done the step test, but I don't test it in training because um, that's just inconvenient for me to do that myself. Um, and I don't have anybody that is willing to follow me around on a scooter or in a car and randomly pull over and, and check my lactate. Um, but, you know, I got this meter because I wanted to sort of see what this was. And I, you know, and then I was like, yep, you know, my brother, well, we can just start testing this stuff, you know, ourselves. And then you, you know, don't have to go and find somebody to do it or, you know, spend all this money to do it because, yeah, you got to buy the meter, but then it's basically, you know, by comparison, extremely cheap because then all you have to do is buy the test strips. And so I have a series of tests um, and I've graphed these together and the tests run from end of December of 2018 to the very beginning of November in 2020. So that's, I think, about a 20-month period. And the change, I think, is pretty impressive, um, to be honest. And I don't say that necessarily in a self-congratulatory way, but I went from, over that 20-month period, from a lactate threshold of about 265 watts to about uh, 350 watts. Now, I don't really know in running terms, you know, I always think of lactate thresholds as being like, what can you run for a 10-mile uh, road race or a 10-mile, maybe be more specific would be doing like a 10-mile race on a track. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent level of improvement is, but I improved, you know, by approximately 30%. I guess, in terms of watts. And, you know, that's a lot, I think, right? You know, that at, to add, you know, approximately 100 watts, you know, 85, 100 watts. And again, right, variance matters. And I think what this is interesting to look at, because one reaction, which I think is logical based on all the stuff people say about training, is to look at the disconnect between my black cats run columns and the formally recommended columns. And also you see with the running, it's a similar phenomena where, you know, for the Daniels, my easy run pace is 725. Um, I consider 725 pace to be my sub lactate pace. Daniel says I should be running 630 pace. And then for like, um, tempo uh pace 609 and i would think of that as being six minutes to 630 pace so i'm looking at my super lactate is what i call that you know feeling over lactate level um as being what daniel says is the marathon pace which right trying to translate all the stuff back and forth as we go the daniel's marathon pace is like the coogan zone three pace okay so I'm saying that my super lactate level, my intensity that feels over that steady state where I might feel like my, you know, breathing becomes, you know, increasingly, it feels noticeably harder over the course of each repetition or each period of work. Well, they're saying, well, that's zone three, you know, and the thing is, when I race, I feel like these zones suddenly become much more into alignment, which goes back to my concept, our theory here that 
is there something going on where there's this level of adrenal response? Or if it's not adrenal, that there's some other form of, you know, arousal or engagement. You know, for me, I don't, and I'd say it's subjective to me, but I have all this other experience, you know, coaching and talking to people that says that's not subjective to me, that this is a common phenomena that people are grappling with, struggling with, is this disconnect between what they're supposed to do and what they can do, right? And so if it's not adrenal, what might it be, right? Is it some other form of like um, arousal engagement? You know, in my case, I feel I've had so many failed bad workout experiences that, and I've thought about this idea sometimes as being the explanation of like, well, I just have this like post-traumatic workout disorder where when a workout is put in front of me, I just can't engage with it because I have so much cumulative, like, and I don't mean to say this to like trivialize actual trauma, but I'm using it in a loosely um, metaphorical sense, but it's like, I have this traumatic relationship with workouts and within my experience of athletics, that's how it feels, you know, because the workouts were unbelievably bad, not just in terms of hard, but like impossible, you know, and I could do thing athletic things and made me feel right at times. Like I am, I'm terrible. Like I shouldn't be doing this stuff because I can't do these things that apparently I'm being told that I can do. But then we look at this data and my approach to training led to this huge improvement. Now, I acknowledge that, you know, I wasn't doing an incredible amount of training when I started doing this. But it's also worth noting that it's not like I was coming into this 20-month period, first of all, with any kind of mindset of trying to see how much can I improve in 20 months. This is just what happened as a natural product of pursuing my training. And then, you know, also I come into that point as somebody who had, you know, basically, you know, plus or minus for all intents and purposes, two decades of athletic training history in, in different sports to different extents. You know, so it was one of those like, okay, I was probably not in great shape, but that's like more in that short term sense of, okay, if I train for six months, you know, I'll, I will get in shape. And what you see is here is there sort of seems to be that initial training up effect, right? And I still think that's valid, right? Because it's not like it, it's not like improvements in fitness don't count, you know, if you go from being not in great shape to being in better shape, right? I mean, that's a part of training. That's the whole point is to get in better shape to get fitter. But I think I maybe talked about this in previous episode. Um, so if, and if just in case I didn't, because it's relevant, let me quickly articulate uh, and make clear that the phenomena was that I went pretty quickly from about 265 to 300 watts. Um, basically, by uh, February, I was around there. And then in October, I was pretty much at a similar level. And then at the beginning of 2020, test in January of 2020, it's really still at that level. And at that point, I think I had gotten sort of disillusioned with this because it's like, well, I don't want to keep doing these tests because they make me feel not good about myself because I'm not performing the way I want to perform. And so I basically forgot about it in a sense and just stopped thinking about it until the end of the year. And I was like, well, now I'm interested in testing this again. And so I did a test where uh, my threshold showed to be about 330 
And I was like, okay, that's better. But I was sort of like, I don't, it didn't feel right. It didn't, I didn't feel stronger. And that was what I think I had even said at the time um, to whoever would listen to me. Right. But that, you know, that's not, that's not what I can do. It doesn't, I know that's not what I can do because that I feel terrible. Right. So November 3rd, right. So that test was October 23rd, November 3rd, I tested it again and then it tested out at 350 or maybe slightly over 350. And I was like, okay, this makes sense because I had seen data in training and racing that had suggested that, you know, I could go out and within, it was within my variability to go out and do that um, or do close, you know, to be at a 360 watts for threshold. And so, but within this test, right, I'm getting to 350. So that's a pretty big improvement um, to make. And you also see, you know, and this is limitations of different kinds of data, you know, the heart rate stuff, you do see a change um, in the heart rate where you are having lower heart rates at higher uh, watts too, right? So that's the point. But the changes are more subtle. And I think that just there is variability in power. And I think there are probably more factors that can impact cardiovascular variability. But and then I also just, you know, when you just focus on the first test and the end test, the difference is pretty significant. I mean, I couldn't, in the step test, I could not get to 350 watts. You know, when I got to 300 watts, I was at probably about seven millimoles of lactate. And then I conked out at 320. And that's one of those things where it was so intense, you can still clearly remember it, you know, and that's a sign of how hard it was. I conked out at 11 um, millimoles. And then at the test at in November, 20 months later, I'm coming in at the same point where I was at 11 millimoles, 320 is now my aerobic threshold. And to put that in context, um, in a running sense, but I think also just elucidating for everybody to think about it in this way, that's the equivalent of taking a effort that would be your um, like zone five to maybe zone six, your sort of interval to rep or economy pace and turning that into your zone three pace or your marathon pace, right? So that's a pretty significant change. And so these things that I'm talking about in terms of training are things that I've done with myself um, who is, has never demonstrated being some sort of like, quote unquote, you know, talented athlete. If we take the definition of talented athlete, again, to be this idea of, you know, somebody who's just going out and doing just really awesome things and, you know, just blowing the doors off in competitions and improves really rapidly and is a really high responder to training. But in this training protocol to make this improvement, right, I'm basically adopting these things. Now, this chart for my my Black Cats run columns for what how where I kind of feel my approximate paces or efforts are for this stuff right now, that's not um, what like the paces were all along. That's just where I am right now. And then this is what makes this other chart seem kind of relevant now is I post and I try to, you know, give some reference for like, what am I trying to do for a training week right now at this point in the year? 
right? And so that's running for 60 minutes, four days a week. And then in the afternoons on those days, it's either doing a trainer ride of about 60 minutes or going out and doing a second run of maybe 75 to 85 minutes. And then I have um, a long run of over distance day where I try to do gold standard run, which for me right now is 17 miles. Try to do about 700 feet of climbing. Then I come back, I ride the trainer for an hour, and then I go and I squat and I deadlift. And then the other two days of the week are the days when I try to do maybe more specific work. So I'll have a day where I'll go out and I'll run for, you know, warm up. And I'll try to do, as I referenced earlier, one of the workouts I've been trying to do is two sets of three times a mile with about a hundred meter jog. Um, and I consider that to be infra lactate for me. I might run that at seven, try to run that around seven minute pace. And that feels like reasonable. That feels like it's productive, right? That's where I want that to be. And then I'll come back and I'll write on the trainer. And then the other, the last day of the week, and these are not in the order that they happen, um, you know, the workouts, the harder days, right, are more spread out. You know, I'll go and I'll do four times 2K at with a 145 jog running, you know, that's infra lactate for me. That's that sub lactate level. And then I'll try to come back on that day and I'll try to do some repetitions on the trainer. You know, one of the things that I might be doing is, you know, uh, five times four minutes at also infralactate. And in general, for me, this would probably be more workouts than I would do overall through most of the time throughout this process. And what's interesting is when I got the lactate meter is I was initially really interested in trying to understand, well, how can I make use of this? And so I started designing these workouts for myself. And at that time, I was only riding on the trainer. See, so this is that's important to contextualize this because number one, I think it made it more possible to do this stuff. But number two, I also think um, that it's important to remember when we look at when did sort of my, what was my scale of improvement and when did those improvements happen? Because I didn't show this, you know, maybe hypothetical X watts per month steadily and then a regression during a recovery period of the year and then resume at a lower level but still higher than I was 12 months ago and right follow some sort of very nice uh, arithmetic progression. That's not what was happening. When I went from 265 to 300, I did a series of pretty significant, I would consider them to be pretty significant training sessions. And they were usually um, rides, and these were all on the Wahoo Kicker using erg mode, which for those of you who don't know, erg mode is something that just sets the tempo. So I guess like running would be kind of like setting the velocity on the treadmill. But these training sessions were most of them were between uh, two hours to three and a half hours. And in some instances, they were maybe 60 minutes. And I don't, one of the things now that I would have done differently with that is I didn't appreciate how trashed I was from doing them. Because I would do them and like sometimes I would go out to do them and I would fail. And sometimes I would go out to do them 
Um, and if I felt good, I would be able to, you know, do the whole thing. And I'd, I'd feel in a groove and it was hard and challenging, but I was feeling good. And that was when I would continue to do them. But if they didn't feel right, I would just stop. And then it was like a very like, I mean, not like in my whole life, but just in that space, it became very emotionally up and down because it was like, okay, I would do this session and it would go really well and I'd be amped. And then I would like try to come back after, you know, take one easy day and try to come back and then I would bomb. And so I think in hindsight, what I see is the pattern is I really could only do these like two or three times a week if I basically did nothing else. And I think to get to do these kinds of workouts, I had to do that. Why were the workouts so long? Because I was working out at two millimoles. Okay. Which again, comes back to that concept of, I don't think it much matters how much you pull down from the sort of getting up to that threshold, I think you just need to pull down enough that you're at a state where you feel comfortable. So in my mind, I was like, I'm going to train at aerobic threshold because I'd been looking at the stuff that had been talking about that as being you know, a really responsive uh, level to work at. And my aerobic threshold, as I've said before, for me is like 89% of my lactate threshold. So it's still pretty significant. You know, The first workout I did was like two times 10 minutes at um, my lack, uh, sorry, my aerobic threshold, which at the time was 245. So I did two times 10 minutes at 245 watts. And then I, you know, with three minute recovery, and I took another three minute recovery. And then I did 12 times 30 seconds on and a minute off. And I did, you know, whatever the on interval, 30 seconds on was 285. And the other one was 205. And I did that. And it's one of those things that sticks out in your mind. Like it's weird, the things that become defining moments in our athletic experience. And I was like, holy crap, that felt so easy. And for me, that was like a huge experience because like I said, post-traumatic workout disorder, I do not expect any kind of organized workout to go well. And I think there's some, you know, it, it just, I'm anticipating blowing up or not being able to do it. And it makes me, you know, tread carefully in terms of, I think, sort of allocating my effort. Um, you know, sort of like walking on ice if you don't know it can support your weight. And at that point, I was like, well, this is awesome. And so then I just like went off. I had a session where I did, um, the session was two minutes at two millimoles and then 45 seconds at like 30 watts less than that. So at one, you know, as my numbers went up, at one point I remember doing it at where the on intervals were 280 and the off interval was like 250 or something. And then, and that was just continuous 20 times, right? So 20 reps of that with just the two minutes, 45 seconds, just back and forth, like for 20 minutes. And I did that three sets of that. And had to eat actually quite a bit to do these sessions. It was amazing how, you know, like eating bags of grapes. And this was sort of, I mean, this was uncharted. This was exploratory, right? Uncharted territory in terms of my athletic experience. And I went from, and I'm like, and I started testing frequently because I was like, I'm feeling a lot stronger and I could feel the stuff getting easier. And then I got to about 300 watts and I remember, I okay, so I got this new test and I sort of tried to, you know, up the ante on the work. I'm just like, okay, let me go to, go to the new 2.0 level. And it just wasn't quite the same. And I think I just kind of lost the rope. And that's kind of the point, right? 
is I think you could make the argument and say, well, you just need to keep going. But that was sort of falling the idea of like, I couldn't, I could have kept going. I just lack the mental skills to do that. Or what I would say is, isn't the whole problem with this stuff that's just really not sustainable because it's too much of a roller coaster ride. And the other interpretation, and I mentioned this earlier, is, you know, there's that sort of immediacy of getting back in shape where it feels like it's easier if you're like not in great shape. It feels like it's easy to initially sort of go out and reestablish. And so how much of that was reestablishing? Um, one of the things we're talking about in a later episode is this idea of like improvement of a specific training model against maybe just like a baseline of sort of steady aerobic training mixed in with some, you know, easy, um, shorter recovery um, days, you know, and how beneficial are these models against that? Because my next jump really happened over the last probably six, I mean, in testing wise, it happened in the last part of 2020, um, where I went from, you know, being stuck at 300 and I had sort of over a whole year based on testing data, really only improved to 315. And then all of a sudden I added 50 watts and I didn't do any of these workouts. I, I, haven't, I didn't really go back to doing these workouts because I just couldn't do the level of activity overall, you know, and the workouts like only got me to a certain point and then I was just stuck basically. And why would I keep doing that? Especially when, you know, a part of the experience of this stuff is being able to do it every day and not just like only doing these sessions um, in the basement in the winter on the trainer and then like not really being able to do other forms of exercise because you're going to jeopardize your ability to reduce your muscular fatigue fast enough to do the next workout. And you have to do it quickly because you're not doing anything to support your aerobic development on these other days because you're going so easy um, or trying or doing some cases nothing to try to recover from this stuff, you know? And it was adding the running that was when after the running was added, that was the only variable that changed. The riding really wasn't anymore. If, if anything, the riding maybe was a little bit less after I added the running. And then it goes up to 350. And I had been able to see, you know, prior to that test, like I knew that it was closer to 350 or 360 because I'd had these other results or performances in in doing hard riding or or racing that, you know, told me that that wasn't right. And I knew the test that showed it at 330 didn't feel good. But imagine you're in a context where you just go out and you only get that one test. You're paying somebody for physiological testing and you don't feel good. Well, you don't have the capacity to be like, hmm, I don't know if this is right. Well, you, I mean, I guess you could say, I'm going to come back later, but now you're just shelling out money like crazy, right? And that's just unrealistic for people to be able to apply that level of intervention. So I've experimented sort of in this data phase that's represented by these by these graphs, I've experimented with some different things. And I think you see some data that shows that initial response from those workouts. And then you see a period of sort of plateau where, you know, even riding a lot, including, you know, a period of riding 25 hours a week for you know, week after week after week, it wasn't really leading to anything. And I think you're looking at specifically, I think you're looking at the limitations of riding as an intervention because it doesn't get that kind of aerobically steady 
stuff. Or to do it, you have to go out and you have to sort of drill down on these kinds of intervals and really keep your your tempo up, right? And I think inertia and kinetic energy just make it really hard to do that if you don't have these long, steady climbs, you know, and you need these longer, steady efforts, you know, one mile climbs, you know, if the if your peak climb, local climbing opportunity is a mile, that's just not going to work. But running, you just start running and you have to constantly work. And it's it's like climbing on the bike, basically. You're constantly producing work. And so you just naturally have way more of a significant steady effort to what you're trying to do. So this concept starts to emerge that those training zones aren't, it's not like you can't hit the training zones, you're not going to get the benefit. I think what starts to emerge is that you don't have to do those training zones that are recommended by these models in order to get the benefit. It's just not strictly necessary. Now, a lot of people are doing it and they're having success, right? But my question would be, you can improve, right, against the baseline of not improving, but is that actually the baseline? Because like if the baseline is just sort of going out and taking your net volume and just sort of dividing it up and just sort of doing approximately an equal part of that volume every day of the week at zone two, to me, that's the baseline. Because I think that's the kind of training that everybody can do pretty effectively, pretty easily. and. You know, with the high intensity stuff, it's just, I can't do it. You know, even those workouts that I referenced that I was doing, those aren't the, the traditional model, right? The model is to get up towards lactate threshold and really try to be up there. I was doing two to three and a half hour sessions where I was just doing tons and tons and tons of repetitions um, or intervals, depending on how you want to conceptualize that. But doing tons and tons of bouts of work repeatedly, um, I tend to lean towards repetitions. I think repetitions maybe are a better form of training in some way than intervals. Uh, but you know, I, I'm doing this, and I was doing it like way below that, right? So I wasn't going out and doing eight times five minutes or five times six minutes at you know VO2 max or doing you know, two times 20 minutes or doing five times a mile or whatever some of these classic or iconic sessions, the sessions that supposedly work. And that's one of those things you see with Jack Daniels is it's a very narrow definition of what are the possible workouts. And the models point you to that conclusion. And I also see a disconnect too from just how hard my heart rates experience in both disciplines, how hard I experience working at different heart rates, you know? So, you know, I posted on the Instagram, my threshold, my benchmarks. So in running, you know, my aerobic threshold heart rate is probably about 177. In running, my lactate threshold is probably about 192. And in VO2 max, it's probably about 213. Cycling, my aerobic threshold, it's all about like eight to 10 beats lower. My Aerobic threshold is 170, my lactate is 183, my VO2 max is like 202, right? Assuming that VO2 max is sort of like approximately like maximum heart rate, which I suppose people can equivocate over that. But I think it's sufficient for the point we're trying to make to use that. I can't get to those heart rates. That's the point, right? Um, and it's not just that the VO2 max, it's like any of those zones. If I'm work, if to work out at that heart rate, 
it feels really bad. You know, it doesn't feel good at all. It doesn't make me want to keep exercising. And I basically fail those workouts. And I think it's a legitimate question. Um, I don't think it should be a legitimate question, but I think culturally, because of the perceptions that we have about this stuff, I think it's become a legitimate question to ask, well, why can't you do this? Are you just, you know, a pussy? And I think that the answer is, I just don't think that that's true. You know, and at many times in my athletic experience, I've questioned, you know, am I not mentally tough enough? Can I not handle adversity? You know, and I think that it's inevitable. And I think most of us have done that. You know, and the important thing is that this is a safe space. Okay. And if you have ever felt that you've lacked that mental toughness, I think it's okay. And if you can't acknowledge that, you can't do that. And I think about some of the experience. Since I've had. So, you know, this year alone, I did, when I did the Unbound 200, uh, I started cramping, you know, not like side stitch, but Charlie Horse level, my muscles are locked up uh, after 40 miles and proceeded to continue to ride the whole race, like with that level of cramping in my quads and hamstrings for nine hours. And my cleats were totally busted um, and just stopped clipping into the pedals. And I kept riding, you know, and everybody else is out there too doing the race and experiencing that hardship too. I don't believe that I set myself apart necessarily from anybody else's experience. Like, I don't think that somehow my experience is more legitimate because I have cramps, but like, I had cramps. And if you've had that experience, like, you know, that that's really difficult, right? Your muscles are basically not working the way you want to. And I don't, I mean, I didn't do it because I thought I was being an animal. I was just like, well, I came here. I want to do the race. I'm not going to not finish the race. And I kept going. And it wasn't like I was lagging. I mean, I think my pace depreciated a little bit, but my pace didn't really depreciate until the cleats, you know, got messed up and I just couldn't really use the pedals properly. And that's sort of like a mechanical transference of force thing. You know, so it's like I do stuff that's hard, you know, and I look at that, I'm confronted with that evidence. But despite that, I still and I still question myself. Today I go out and I do my run and I don't really feel the way that I might want to. And it's like the reality is I did the most productive thing that I did, you know, on that day. I couldn't have I couldn't have done anything more productive because I couldn't have done it. I wasn't in, in the wheelhouse to execute that. And you know, my goal isn't to exonerate myself or, you know, uh, self-therapy away my my feelings of whatever about, you know, not being tough enough. I'm pretty much beyond that. But I still, right, wonder at some times of like, well, am I doing this? Am I pushing myself enough? You know, or is it okay that I'm listening to that? That's sort of more where I'm at. And I think that that's probably more representative of where most of us are. The most of us kind of know really what we can handle. And we don't need to, we're not having an identity crisis about that, but we're maybe wondering, well, what's informing my experience right now? Is my desire to slow down? Is that because I should? Like, am I actually working too hard? Does this actually how this is supposed to feel? Right? Or do I need to lean into this effort? And I think a sense of understanding, like people will push themselves really hard if they think it's going to get them where they want. And I think for me, my perception of this isn't really beneficial you know, does inform some of that experience in training. And I have mounting evidence, personal, anecdotal, coaching, 
And also, you know, as you look at things that people are publishing, you can start to see this. Um, and the physiologicals don't work because they're too hard. Okay. Like for most people, they're too hard and constantly people fail. And I think it's more than a recovery issue, right? It doesn't matter how recovered I am. I can't, I just can't access that stuff. I need, I can't be adrenal, right? I had that one workout where I was all keyed up in college because I didn't have my shoes and I had to go back and get my shoes and I was frustrated. And so then that elevated my emotional state. And all of a sudden I'm out there tearing it up, but that's not who I am as a person. I don't go to workouts and get elevated. Um, you know, I think of my first workout uh, for college over the summer, uh, you know, going from senior of high school to freshman year of college. You know, I did the first workout. It was like mile and a half, three times a mile and a half. And I think I probably ran them at maybe six minute pace. And for me, having basically been failing to do any workouts, just doing a workout of any kind felt great. Didn't matter to me how fast or slow it was or whatever, right? And so in June or whatever, doing this thing and I and it was, you know, hot. And I was like, wow, that was good. I did that. I felt confident. And like, that was hard. And I was so proud of myself that I emailed coach and reported. And the coach emailed me back and said, you, those are supposed to be done at 530 pace. And I was just like, screw that. That's not possible. I can't do that. Like I was just doing the most that I could. Right. So, I mean, obviously, you know, there's other limitations in terms of like, I hadn't even met the coach yet or whatever. Right. But, you know, I think hypothetically, so I'm not saying this to rag on coach, but I think hypothetically in that situation, if you just take it as a case study, what could have been done differently? I think we could have processed that and been like, well, it sounds like that's basically for you all that you can really do. So that's good. That's good workout, right? Congratulations, right? I'm not going to tell you <laughs> you should have run 530 pace. So I'm going to say that's really great. And I'm going to encourage you because we figured out where like your actual like training maybe threshold is, right? That maybe a training threshold is something that's different, right? And even that's going to have variance. But maybe a training threshold is something that has less variance. And maybe it's based more on how you feel, right? Than based on these kind of objective numbers and the beliefs that you have to hit these particular numbers because they are what are going to make these uh, gains possible, right? And then again, you have to stay out of those those black zones, those um, unproductive zones. And, you know, looking at my cycling training too, uh, the point isn't that I suck at training. And if you look at those columns and the cycling one, I really seem to just sort of, you know, break down and have no discipline and don't work out in these zones. Um, but, you know, I hit the numbers, you know, uh, crank the kank, I, which is a time trial in New Hampshire, um, up the Kang of Mangus, it's whatever, 21 miles. And, you know, so you go the first, whatever, depending on who you are, right? Some people might be 35 minutes for other people might be closer to, um, 45 minutes, but you go that first 16 miles. And then the last five miles is the really part of the kink. And I rode hard to there. And then I normalized 360 to the last 25 minutes, you know, even with having to get off the bike to put my chain back on. Right. And the point of that is like, there was a disruption, right. Where, you know, I could have totally like in a training session, you know, having to do that, I would have just totally been off, you know, at that point, but I just got back on seamlessly and just resumed the effort. So I think in those contexts, maybe I am, those are the contexts where I am adrenal. And if that's true, I can do the numbers when adrenal, but I don't think the solution is to go adrenal. And we see this with Camden, right. And I, 
reference this, but reiterating, because I think this is kind of a key understanding that's setting up our transition to talk about improv training in the next segment. Um, He backs off the prescribed intensities and all of a sudden he solved the puzzle of being able to train consistently throughout the year. Right. And so for my brother, right. To go um, from being in this sort of pushing the limit, pushing, pushing, pushing to try to get better to now training way easier. And then all of a sudden it's like these improvements and a level of strength and capacity that he hadn't really quite been able to get to or feel is there. And it's a way it's a bummer that he has sort of diversified and to do more running races and gravel racing and isn't following like the same focus on the road racing on the bike, because it would be cool to see um, what that benefit would give. But the flip side of it is that improved level of fitness is making him want to go out and do these other things because he can do this competently. We see this with uh, Jillian Bennett too. You know, and the whole time I've known her as an athlete, I don't think has had any particular aptitude for executing workouts in the traditional sense. And, you know, whereas my brother will still go out and sort of do kinds of things, you know, Jillian won't, you know, basically at all. We just don't really even bother, you know, at most she'll do some of the workouts that I might do for myself. And we might, you know, go through the run through those sessions together, but she's, you know, doing what she's doing, um, you know, like including running one twenty one for half marathon last year as somebody who primarily I would say identifies as a cyclist. So there's something going on here. Um, and when all the athletes are dropping down their intensity, all of a sudden they have wings, right? All of a sudden they can fly and, you know, but it's only in races that you see this like top numbers, but that's the only time it matters, right? We get it done when it counts. I talked about specificity. Specificity means being able to execute what we need to execute, right? And if we can do that in the race, if we can race the way we want to race, then our training must be specific because it's creating the performance versus looking at training in the context of, well, the purpose of training is to execute a model. No, the purpose of a training model should be to get you to performance. So, but we've switched our mindsets because we've become so fixated. And the fact that these models are so hard, I think, drives us to fixate on them in particular. Um, you know, we had a dual meet, uh, one of the last years I I coached outdoor track. Um, we had a dual meet. Our guys put it down in the 1600 because right in high school, apparently it's bad to run the mile. It's bad to run the 1500. You should just run the 1600. I personally think they should just, you know, back them up to whatever the nine meters that is and let them run the mile, but whatever. Um, you know, our guys put it down. Eight guys basically hanging with each other until the last 300 meters. And the reality is that the competing teams, their athletes were not in the picture probably by basically the 800 meters into the race. And then last, last 300 meters, people are making moves. And it's just, it's beautiful because that's what it's supposed to look like. That's the experience that you want to have as, in the sport is you want to be able to be there and be in the race and be at that moment when it's time to, you know, finish, right? When people start to try to figure out how can I, how can I win? How can I apply my energy? Like that's what's exciting. And they all ran 425 to 437. Those times were half of the top times, top 16 times in the state for the mile. 
you know, at that point in the season, you know, and that was like, that's a big deal. And we weren't running repeat quarters at goal pace. You know, that wasn't a thing. We would do some, we did some stuff that was hard, but that might've been like, well, usually we would have a, a meet today. And we believed that the meets were a key benefit. So if there wasn't a meet on that day in the schedule, we might kind of do out a simulation. We might do like a time trial, right? And, and take advantage of that group of people to sort of do that. But, you know, that wasn't that wasn't a part of the regular training program. Um, that was just because the number of meets have declined as more coaches, because the coaches get to come together and they can sort of negotiate basically with each other what they want the schedule to be. And they've just sort of negotiated down and down and down. And it's a bummer. It was a bummer to watch that happen because they all want there to be less meets. And then they uh, didn't want, they wanted to limit the number of athletes that any team could have competing in meets, um, whether that was at the weekday meets or the invitationals. And to me, it's like, again, this idea of, well, you know, what is the goal here to just focus on particular individuals Right. And just sort of ignore the collective experience. And I think that goes back to that idea of like, what's our bias? Right. And I think the bias is that we think outliers are representative, you know, but never once did I put those milers through a Roger Bannister workout. We were looking at cumulative effect, you know, long term, you know, aerobic transformation from moderate intensity. So I think the question is, what should we be studying? Should we be studying what the kind of, you know, select few are doing? Should we look to the outliers to try to understand what's going on? Or should we try to say, well, what's the experience of most people, right? Again, survivorship bias, like why aren't they succeeding, you know? And then maybe look at people who are succeeding without applying the current models, without using the current, you know, concepts or methods that everybody says is so important. And maybe that's where we're going to get onto something that's more beneficial. And that's what we want to try to get into in the next segment, is we want to talk about improv training as we start to close in on finishing this arc. Improv training, and then how can we really try to like conceptually understand that, and then actionable. What can we do to try to shift to that, or incorporate those kinds of things, or get the value that is in there. That's it for today's segment. If you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to recommend it to other folks you think would be interested. Love to be able to expand the space around the podcast and you know use the ideas here to promote and encourage dialogue. Uh, if you're on Instagram, We'd love to invite you to come and follow the Instagram page. Use that as a space for that. That's also where we're posting uh, some of the visuals that go along with some of the things that we're talking about and exploring. Um, Also, right, space to share questions, things that you think would be interesting to talk about in other episodes, perspectives that you want to see represented. Uh, If you have any resources, interesting books. They don't necessarily have to be current books, but things that maybe help us understand the history of how training has evolved over time, um, you know, and you can reference those. That would be awesome. We'd love to be able to try to include as many sources as we can in our exploration of this stuff. 
And if you, you know, want feel like sending us a DM and let us know what you're thinking and how you're experiencing the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. So thanks for checking in on this edition of Black Cats Run, and we'll catch you next time.